Howdy folks, welcome to Down with the Dharma. Uh, today I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Michael Slott from Rutgers University. Um, Mike Slott has been teaching as a part-time lecturer in the Department of Labor Studies and Employment Relations since 2001. In addition to Introduction to Labor Studies, Mike has taught Collective Bargaining, American Unions and Politics, and the History of Labor and Work in the United States. And uh, Mike received a master's in labor and industrial relations and a doctorate in the Social and Philosophical Foundation of Education at Rutgers. Um, Mike has been act an active participant in the labor movement for over 40 years. He's had experience in many areas of union activity, including negotiating contracts, presenting union grievances at arbitration hearings, organizing new members, and coordinating union educational programs. Um, a longtime political and labor movement activist, Mike continues to explore the intersection between secular Buddhism and socially engaged Buddhism. He's a member of New York Insight in the USA and principal editor of the newsletter Reimagining Community and also the website Secular Buddhist Network. And so uh, I'm very Happy to have Mike on the show. I, I, I'm recently getting more and more into socialism and, and seeing, I'm interested in Buddhism and socialism and, and uh, I haven't, have, haven't found that many people to talk to about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. John, thanks for, for, for having me on the um, podcast. I'm really glad to be here. And, uh, you know, I, um, I think, um, it's, I think it's important um, to think about, you know, how um, a Buddhist perspective, Buddhist insights about the world, about human beings, um, can be connected to a, a radical approach to politics. And it's, um, it's not something that a lot of people um, have an interest in. Um, there are some that I've, you know, communicated with over the years and, some people have written some some very good things um, along those lines. So, but I'm really glad though just to have the opportunity to kind of explore the connection a little bit for your listeners, and um, you know, even if they're not particularly, um, they don't share the, the you know particular perspective. I think it's it's just something. I think it's worthwhile to consider and think about, uh, particularly with all the things that are happening now, um, pandemic, financial. Um, economic line. Anyway, I just, I look forward to, um, you know, kind of having a discussion with you about that. Great. Cool. Um, so, uh, okay. So let's just get into it. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll ask uh, the first question here. Um, how did you get into Marxism and labor organizing? Okay. Well, that starts, that starts actually a long time ago. I'm, uh, I'm 66 years old. So I grew up um, really kind of at the tail end where in the civil rights movement of the 1960s and the, um, the anti-Vietnam War movement were very strong. And um, this was something, you know, so I was, I was growing up at a time when, you know, there were on TV, you would see atrocities that were occurring about the civil rights movement and, and then the Vietnam War. And, um, you know, kind of my generation, Time. A lot of us were very much affected 
by that, as, as I'm sure you can imagine, lots of books written about the topic. And, you know, I, I think probably by the time I was in high school, um, you know, maybe 15, 16 years old, kind of the weight of all that stuff started to have an impact on me. I think I mean, also I would say that in terms of my own childhood, I had, uh, you know, our, our family wasn't poor. Uh, you know, we always had food, eat, and so forth. But we were actually, um, relatively speaking, and kind of struggling, you know, at times um, financially and economic, you know, and uh, I didn't necessarily have all the things that my friends had. And I kind of early on was a, a bit sensitized the sort of unfairness of things, you know, people, people's lives were affected by the lack of resources. So I think that was partly in the mix, but it was really in the, in the, in the late sixties that kind of what was happening in society really had a profound effect on me and, and a lot of other people. And, you know, I, I, I began to oppose the Vietnam War. I got um, politically active in local groups that were, that went on. And at the same time, I was really, I think, kind of searching for something that made sense of it all. And, um, you know, I actually, I, I remember kind of just looking around and reading different magazines. And, and I think I also wanted something not just political, but also something that provided a kind of um, an overall framework for understanding what was going on. So I, I remember at one point, I actually got interested in a... Um, uh, an organization of uh, the American Humanist Association, um, you know, and just they, they had a kind of ethical and universal, universal, um, universal kind of perspective about, you know, the need to better. But um, I, I found them, you know, that to be kind of um, very vague and sort of abstract. And I think I was also looking for something that provided more of an explanation of, what was what was actually happening in society and relationships between people, powerful, you know, powerful forces in society. And so kind of as I became more politicized and more open to a radical perspective, eventually came across just, you know, reading a bunch of different things, um, uh, a kind of um, a sort of a, a trend within um, Marxism and socialism, which, uh, it's, it's been called different names, but I, you know, at the time it was referred to as kind of a, a Marxist humanism or a humanistic version of Marxism. And I remember reading a book back then, this was in probably 1968 or 69, um, that was called Socialist Humanism. And it was edited by um, actually a guy named Eric Fromm, who's a psycho psychoanalyst, but he was a, uh, a psychoanalyst who was very much about social problems, in fact, considered himself a socialist. And he edited um, this book, which had essays from various writers, many of them actually from Eastern Europe, who were critical of communist regimes, but supported a kind of humanistic version of Marxism. So really, that was my kind of opening to, you know, Marxism. And I never... Um, you know, for me, I was never, you know, supportive of the Soviet Union or China or Cuba. I never, I always felt very strongly that those were um, societies that were communist. And I had really no interest in them. But I also felt that the United States was, what was going on was fundamentally wrong and unfair and flawed. And so my kind of um, 
you know, initial, you know, entree into um, Marxism was really along those lines. It was, you know, a kind of Marxism that, you know, was radical in its analysis and, and certainly saw um, class conflict and, you know, kind of uh, the struggles there as being extremely important, but it wasn't kind of, um, uh, it wasn't a, a bureaucratic approach. It was really uh, kind of a Marxist emphasized human activity, um, human creativity, and the need to create a, a democratic so, uh, social society, which is, I, I guess, uh, right now, how I would still characterize, you know, my, my overall perspective would be a sort of democratic social so, and, and that was always very important for me. You know, I was, the democratic element, um, a radical approach, I think, is, is absolutely important. Because I think, you know, as a lot of people said, unique to me, I mean, you know, that if you don't um, combine a, a radical change with a thoroughgoing democratic process uh, and set of ideals, you, you run into so I, I, that was, that was kind of, that was my starting point. I kind of actually stayed there through the years. Uh, it's been many years. Um, and then the labor component was that, um, you know, of course, uh, with a, a kind of humanistic Marxist perspective, um, the role of, of working people, labor unions is extremely important. There's many, like, like in Buddhism, you know, there's many different perspectives on that, you know, um, and, um, but I, um, I really felt that it was for me that my political activism, um, at a certain point, I, I what I felt the strongest resonance to was being involved in the labor movement with labor unions, but in a way that tried to transform those unions into more democratic organizations, more progressive organizations, more radical organizations. And you know, this started actually um, when I was in college. Um, by my junior year, I was involved in a, in a socialist group that shared the, the, the um, view. And uh, one of the things that we really focused on was, um, even though we were students, we um, did a lot of what was called strike support. It was a union that was on strike. It's, you know, it was uh, seemed to be a good cause, uh, particularly important. You know, we would offer strike support. We would go down to the picket line and be with them. We would cast flyers and support them. And in whatever way we could um, try to support them, so that was my initial involvement in the labor movement. Was as kind of an, a student, as an outsider. But then, after I graduated from college, um, I, I didn't take the route of going to graduate school right away. In fact, I didn't um, go to graduate school 15, 16 years after I graduated. So I was. A, I'm sorry about my dog. If you could hear my dog, okay. we're a dog-friendly podcast. It's okay. <laughs> she, she gets very excited all the time. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I um, what I did was after college, I actually um, went to the work world and got uh, jobs where there were. Uh, I was a member of a union. I, there were several jobs like that, and I was basically, you know, I saw myself trying to kind of um, where the union was not being very progressive or democratic to try work with other members of the union, move the union in that, you know, in that path. And so I started getting, but also a lot of experience, you know, doing that when you start, um, you know, when you're involved in a labor union and you're taking it seriously and, you know, you're talking with, with your co-workers, um, 
you know, you, you start to develop a more grounded approach. You know, it's not just theory. It's a practice of organizing and talking with people and how do you move people in a certain direction and how do you deal with disagreements and, you know, so forth. So I ended up, um, after a few years of that, I won't go into all the details, but ended up uh, eventually um, getting a job as a, um, a paid staff member for a union. And so what that entailed was, instead of uh, being a member of a union, I was actually on the staff of a union. I was being paid. And um, I just, you know, you, in the beginning, you read off some of the, the things that I had done in the labor movement. And, but they were, you know, kind of basic um, sort of activities that unions are involved in. So I involved being workers at a particular company negotiate a contract. So I would sit with them in a committee and we would, talk across the table with management. And so that involved helping to advocate, you know, um, those issues. And then I would be doing organizing uh, among workers and tr- getting them involved in the union. And then also trying to organize um, non-union workers into, into, into our union. And so I'd sort of developed those experiences and I worked for one union for a couple of years and then another for five years. And then, um, my home, so to speak, in the labor movement was a union, a uh, healthcare union in New Jersey, um, which has about 13,000 members and represents um, mostly registered nurses in hospitals. In New Jersey. And um, I was with that union from 1992 to the end of 2017 when I retired after 25 years there. And just, I, I have just, I still have tremendous. Um, of kinship and loyalty to the union. I actually still do some volunteer work for them. Um, but I uh, sort of expanded out beyond doing the uh, negotiations and representing members and organizing, and I got very much involved in um, education and training within the union. So, so my job was to work with um, people who were elected officers of the union and people who were elected by their co-workers to advocate for them. Uh, sometimes they're referred to shop stewards. Uh, in our union, we call them reps. And uh, I basically help them to develop their skills and their organizing capacity to be able to be more effective and also to you know, try to bring a kind of broader perspective of unionism. Them. So I did that. That was a very big part of work with this union. By the way, the name of the union is called the Health Professionals and Allied Employees. It's an affiliate of the American Federation of Teachers, which is an extremely large union in our country, about a million and a half people. And the final thing I did with them was that I was involved in actually um, doing the website. So I had a lot um, of um, you know, communication skills, working on that. I sent out a, a weekly uh, email newsletter to our 13,000. I was pretty heavily involved, you know, and um, I think I did over the years just, I, I you know, gained a tremendous amount of um, experience um, in all areas of union. And I, I think that just really helped me to um, develop a pretty grounded approach to unions. And that actually was very helpful for me in doing my other job, which is that I, uh, since 2001, I've been an adjunct instructor at Rutgers University, a public university in New and I'm teaching uh, labor studies, uh, various courses you listed in the beginning. In the last 10 years or so, my, my focus has been labor history. 
and uh, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's funny, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with students at the university who, most of them are not anti-union, but a lot of them don't have a clue about what a labor union is or does. And uh, we're studying, I teach the, the period from the late 19th century, 80s to end of World War II. And um, it, it's sometimes very hard to sort of get across. I mean, you can, as a teacher, I can get across the fact of what occurred and the key events. But I, I, my, my goal is really to try to get them to see the relevance of that history to what's happening now and in and their own lives. And to, to, to try to get across that, however imperfect unions are, and however bureaucratic they may become or problematic, they still play an awfully important role in our society and that we really need vibrant democratic unions. We want to power structure in the country. It's not the only source of challenge. There are other organizations, other movements that play a role, but if you don't have the, the massive working people kind of organized in a way that really, you know, can challenge the domination of our society, you know, and, and um, you know, we're not really going to progress. So it's not the only thing, but I think it's still an awfully important thing. So anyway, that's a, that's a little, you know, yeah. that's kind of my, my, my summary. Yeah, thank you. That's, I mean, that's amazing. I, there's so many amazing things in there. Uh, <laughs> I'm just like, wow. Um, yeah. um, um, so then, again, I'm a newbie to the whole uh, socialism thing here, but um, um, the, I've heard the, the, the distinction between um, anarchist approach and a Leninist approach. Would that be the kind of two categories? Um, well, I would say that, I mean, there are just so, there are so many different, you know, categories and versions. I mean, actually, anarchism is, uh, in some ways, a separate um, political perspective or philosophy, separate from socialism, Marxism, and, and, and communism. I mean, it really, um, again, but there are people who consider themselves to be socialists, who might have certain um, approaches or perspectives that, you know, um, are somewhat anarchistic. I mean, the, the basic difference is that anarchists, um, um, you know, in the purest sense, believe that um, the state, the government, is whether it is um, socialist or uh, capitalist controlled, it is still a, 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 um, a force of coercion. And, and therefore, um, we you know, we should create a society in which the, the there is no sort of government or administration and that what is needed instead is sort of self-governing communities of workers and community members who can organize society without any government. And um, I would say that, you know, I, I think we do need a government. I think we, you know, as a socialist, I, I think we need a government. We need levels of planning and coordination and we need um, elections to, to you know kind of hash out um, you know our different approaches to that but I, I where I would kind of resonate a bit with the anarchists is just the idea that we want as much as possible to um, create structures at workplaces and in the community that allow 
people to have a direct voice in uh, in their lives. Um, and but but I think that what the what anarchists um, you know d- don't really take account of is the fact that you know we have a very complex society. We also have problems that um, are really require uh, tremendous coordination and planning uh, at a national level, even at an international level. And we need some type of um, organizations, political bodies to be able to to enact that. Now, those bodies should be as much as possible controlled by people who voted, but also other, other ways. So... Um, yeah, so I, I think that that is problematic with the anarchists. Now, the Leninist, you know, trend is just, it's kind of one version or one approach within the broad spectrum of socialism and, and Marxism. And right, kind of like, like, like how you were saying before, how there's so many different kinds of Buddhism. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, it just, you know, and again, it's, it's hard to sort of, in a, in a short thing, you know, kind of, yeah you know, um, provide a sort of, you know, easy summary of it or, you know, kind of yeah. divide things up so easily. But, you know, I mean, the, the I'm, I don't consider myself a Leninist. Um, I think the, and I think most democratic socialists these days don't consider themselves Leninists because um, if, you know, one aspect of Leninism taken as a whole is that there is a kind of an emphasis on, um, a sort of discipline, a centralized discipline, um, and uh, in practice, you know, easily drifting off into a kind of undemocratic, even dictatorial situation. And that's happened in history. And it's not to say that there aren't ideas that, you know, Lenin talked about the need for, you know, the, uh, a political party to play a very um, coherent and very strong role in organizing people. And in um, you know uh, having a kind of a, a clear and consistent message, um, and so there's aspects of Leninism that aren't bad, you know, I would say, but I don't I don't see myself I don't think of myself I never saw myself as a Leninist, and even you know back in the uh, you know the late sixties and early seventies I was back then more involved in socialist politics. I, I'm now I'm a member of the the Democratic Socialists of America, but that's, and I'm, you know, somewhat, you know, somewhat active, but it's not, doesn't compare to the younger days. But, um, so yeah, so I think there's just a lot, like in Buddhism, there's just a lot of different perspectives. And again, for me, I think the thing, when I, when I talk about um, radical politics and humanistic Marxism, for me, the democratic component is super important. You know, it's just, it's integral to it. I don't, um, I, I don't do, I, I don't sort of I, I don't have a conflict over Leninism or you know anarchism. That's just that's just not my you know where I'm coming from. But uh, I mean some people some people do and that's fun. Right. Okay, cool. I mean I could just keep yeah. asking you more questions about Marxism, but I wanna <laughs> <laughs> um, that's all right. um so then um so how did you get into Buddhism? Okay, well that's a much more recent Mm-hmm. A much more recent phenomenon. And, you know, again, I, it's funny because, you know, I, it, when I was in, you know, my teens and early 20s and becoming politically active, um, I knew virtually nothing about Buddhism or other Eastern religions. In fact, really, I, I and I, and I wrote, wrote a little bit about this in a recent article I did, which um, 
you know, appeared in the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, but also in the website that I edit, the Secular Buddhist Network. And, you know, I just, I just didn't know anything about it. And I was actually kind of dismissive, or I felt that the people who were, like, when I heard about people going to India or talking about, um, you know, various spiritualities, I just, I really saw that as being, um, you know, these are people who are not dealing with the, the real, you know, we have racial discrimination in our society. You know, we have, you know, students being killed at Kent State. We've got, you know, we're massacring, killing so many Vietnamese. I mean, you know, you know, uh, meditation and, you know, going to India, what's that got to do, you know, with solving those problems? And I, so I had, a, I, unfortunately, a very kind of narrow perspective on it. Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I, it, that I was as, you know, kind of negative through the years, but I really, I, I just wasn't connected with any of those movements. It just didn't mean it, didn't mean much to me. And to the extent that I got inspiration, um, felt like what I was doing politically in the labor movement had a kind of more ethical path. It was more like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the sense of the beloved community and, you know, the sense of solidarity, you know, that workers get together. That to me had kind of um, an emotional, sort of ethical and kind of spiritual um, resonance. Um, but I didn't think anything, I didn't know anything about Buddhism at all. But um, around uh, 10 years ago, I went through a patch uh, at work, you know, with my with the union, that was very difficult for me. I had a lot on my plate, and essentially was overworked and overburdened. And um, I, I got really burnt out and had anxiety. And my wife, who is, by the way, a psychologist, um, she suggested that um, I try to meditate. And she had had some experience with insight meditation, and she knew about Jack Cornfield. Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg. She had, you know, their books. I did. I, you know, it's funny. As she was reading them at the time, I didn't have a clue what she was reading. I and I wasn't really connected with that. So I just started, you know, and I did it really totally as a stress release, and found that it was um, at least for those that half an hour or so that I was um, trying to do mindfulness meditation. That it actually was kind of an oasis in my life. And I felt it just felt like, wow, this is a different way of um, of being, you know, and uh, kind of um, finding some peace, um, you know, or some some more peace in my life. And well, the, the bottom line is that once I started doing that, I got into a regular meditation practice. I found it very helpful. But then we started going to events and workshops and retreats at. Uh, New York Insight. You know, we live in northern New Jersey, so, you know, we're not that far away from New York City. And New York Insight has a center. Um, it's not a residential center, it's just a, but a, a lovely center in Manhattan and New York City. We started going to their programs, and um, I just found it, um, it really, it really uh, touched me. It, it felt like this was almost like a kind of homecoming for me. Um, they had you know, kind of very diverse group of people. They're young and old, uh, people of color. And, um, you know, many of them seemed also to be interested in social, socially engaged Buddhism and, and sort of they would seem very liberal and progressive people. So I, I found, you know, I found a connection there. And then, um, you know, but I also had like a residual kind of concern about Buddhism being this religion. And I talked to one of the teachers 
at New York Insight after uh, a day-long retreat, and I said, look, I, I, you know, I, I really feel, you know, I like the sitting meditation. I like the walking meditation. I like kind of the spirit of what you're talking about, but I'm not, I'm not religious. I mean, I've been an agnostic my whole life. I mean, I, I, I had it early on when I was young. I, I come from a Jewish family, so I was bar misfit. But shortly after I was bar misfit, I, you know, I was not at all involved in, you know, uh, observing, you know, Jewish um, holidays or whatever. Just, it just wasn't something that I, I just didn't find it to be meaningful. Again, that's not, I'm not, it's not a negative on Judaism or anything like that. I, I know a lot of people who, are still connected or, you know, observe. I think that's great. But for me, it just wasn't, it just, it just didn't make sense to me. It wasn't meaningful to me. But I was an agnostic all the time. And I said, look, I just, I'm not religious. I don't believe in sort of kind of devotional aspects of religion. And I certainly, you know, I, I don't believe or I don't know, you know, if God exists. And um, I also, I'm not, I'm, I guess it also comes from my sort of democratic radical perspective. I'm not like a big fan of like, gurus or teachers being on a pedestal. I don't, I don't like that as much as I don't like some political leader, you know, talking down to people, you know, acting in a kind of undemocratic way. So she said, well, look, you know, you really should check out this guy, Stephen Batchelor, who's written some books about secular Buddhism. And, you know, he, you know, you don't have to be um, religious. You don't have to believe in, uh, you know, certain of the um, supernatural aspects traditional Buddhism, you know, uh, rebirth and karma and, you know, and so forth. And uh, to, to, you know, um, connect strongly with a Buddhist perspective. So, it's, so I started reading Stephen Batchelor. And once I got in, I kind of, I have the kind of personality where I, um, once I'm into something that I uh, care about, I really get into it. <laughs> reading a lot. So I just, I just started, um, we, you know, I continued to do meditation and I continued to connect with New York Insight, but I was just doing an awful lot of reading. And then I started getting the whole range of, you know, learning about Theravada, Mahayana, you know, and Zen, and just all the different aspects of Buddhism, the history, the, the, the perspectives, along with continuing to um, read about sort of a secular Buddhism. And so what I ended up doing really, um, I say around 2011, I started in my own mind, thinking about, um, you know, how I could connect secular Buddhist perspective with a perspective that I already had had for so many years, for 40, 40, 45 years, that was just my life. This was a central part of my life. How does it fit in? You know, how do they connect? And really, since then, that's, that's kind of in terms of the writing that I've done. And I've, you know, I've done a, a fair amount of articles, um, you know, trying to sort of think about, you know, um, secular Buddhism, thinking about how secular Buddhism connects with um, kind of uh, socially engaged Buddhism, as you talked about in the beginning, you know, in my bio and, uh, you know, connecting to a radical politics. So that's really, you know, how I've, you know, kind of got into Buddhism. And um, again, it's a sort of a unique and unique way of doing it. I think many people maybe start off, um, like finding Buddhism as their main perspective and then going from there and then maybe evolving. But I, you know, Buddhism was not a part of my life you know, until, until 10 years ago. And, uh, oh, I mean, I'm very happy to, to have, you know, found it and, and, um, 
you know, I right now um, it, we can talk more about the Cyber Buddhist Network and you know that work. But you know, right now I have um, a member of a local sangha in New Jersey, um, which is kind of a sort of an offsite affiliate of New York Insight. We have a, you know, we're all of course we're online now on Zoom because of the pandemic, but we have a really great group of people. You know, we have about uh, you know ten to fifteen people who who meet every week. Uh, you know, they're not all secular. They're, they're not actually, I think my wife and I are probably the only explicit secular Buddhists, but they're great. People come from different traditions. You know, again, New York Insight, I think it's really nice that way. They're not, um, they have a very kind of open attitude. Um, so you don't have to be a Theravadan, you know, you can come from a Zen, you know, perspective. Um, although obviously it's within the Insight meditation tradition. Um, people have a lot of different approaches at New York Insight. So it's same with this local saga. We people come in from the yoga tradition, people who come in from being involved in, you know, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, started as a as someone who a participant and then became a teacher and then, you know, evolved and in, into a really strong sort of connection with Buddhism. So I, I really like our group, and um, we actually run it very democratically. We have I'm one of the practice leaders. I lead meditations on a rotating basis with with some other people. And, um, you know, we have, we have group discussions. Uh, it's not top down. It's very, a lot of participation people. And, uh, so yeah, I really, really like that. Yeah. So that's how I got, that's how I got involved. Um, so then when, when you're talking about, um, in the sixties being involved in, um, the labor movement and and looking at yeah humanistic socialism and then uh, seeing people going to Asia to meditate and um, so is it like this like my my way of thinking about it is I think some I, and I think this is a legitimate critique that some people can use Buddhism as a way to in a sense dissociate from what's happening in reality. Uh, <laughs> so they can just kind of go into a, like an escapist space. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and that seems to be, I mean, so this, I mean, this brings up the idea within Marxism of having a critique of religion as something that, um, people use as a way to just kind of escape from having to deal with social issues. And so then, so then the social issues never get dealt with. Right. No, I think I think that's. I mean, well, it, it, it's um, you know, Marx's perspective on religion was um, pretty interesting, pretty complex. I mean, you know, the, the famous slogan, you know, religion is the opium of the people. But he also was saying about religion that, in some ways, it kind of revealed the potential of human beings to flourish, and that in some ways this was misdirected. So, you know, I mean, that that critique, or at least part of his critique, got taken by communist regimes, some, you know, into kind of just totally, you know, all religions are bad. I don't really, f I think that, you know, religions are, you know, they're just very, Buddhism or any other religion, Catholicism, whatever, they just have, they have a lot of different trends. And I think, yeah, you'll find in Buddhism um, a lot of bad stuff, actually, you know, among practitioners of it, you know, you look at Burma, what's happening there, and, uh, you know, the terrible treatment of the ethnic minorities, by, by so-called Buddhists. Um, and yeah, there are the Buddhists who use um, 
Buddhism as an escape. I mean, there's a uh, famous um, radical philosopher. I always I have trouble pronouncing his last name. I think it's Zizek, um, um, who's from Slovenia, who, you know, that's, you know, that's the, he makes that point about Buddhism, that it, it can be a kind of perfect complement to sort of commercial capitalism that provides a sort of refuge for people from it. And then you and you and you have legitimate critiques about some ways in which mindfulness is used to um, you know, kind of um, basically support uh, corporations to get their workers to be sort of uh, you know kind of less anxious and stressed so they can be productive and yeah so and I think you know that's true I, I you know I think all of that and I, I don't um, I don't dismiss that I think that's a legitimate criticism of you could say of a lot of practitioners and a lot of trends in Buddhism, but they're also you know, a lot of people who are traditional Buddhists, uh, not secular Buddhists, who are doing wonderful work. I mean, uh, you probably have heard of Iku Bodhi, who's a Theravada um, mm-hmm. monk uh, who has just played a wonderful role in, in terms of trying to move the discussion within Buddhism toward uh, a more socially active, even radical approach. And David Loy, who's a Zen uh, teacher, who's who's also had that. So... I don't know. You know, I don't think I don't break it down. I don't think of all secular Buddhists is all, you know, because many secular Buddhists are not really interested in Marxism. So I think it just it's it's a very complex picture. But yes, I mean, certainly I would agree with you that um, there is there's definitely one component of Buddhism is that that sort of you call it a spiritual bypass, that thing of like, well, we'll just I'll just kind of operate in the realm of meditation and I don't have to deal either with my own messy personal issues or the social issues that are really bearing down on people. So, um, you know, yeah, that's certainly a, a, a reality. Yeah. yeah. And that, um, that is, that is, uh, yeah, what I'm interested in is how, how can Buddhism be used to uh, recognize, embrace and transform social suffering as well as well as your own individual suffering yeah well i think i mean if, if we you know that's um it's an interesting question i think you know i what i would i, I think there are um, um sort of insights in the, the buddha had and certainly the you could you could find um aspects of a buddhist perspective that that do dovetail nicely with uh, a more social approach and approach of, of wanting to, to see social changes. I mean, David Loy is someone who's, I mentioned, you know, who's done, written a, a lot about how to make the connections between kind of core Buddhist concepts and social action. So I, th- I think it can be, I think it can be done. I would say, though, that I see, I, my, my approach has been to um, to say about you know because that's one of the one of the things I think you, you wanted me to talk about was the you know how I saw the connection between Buddhism and Marxism and in a way I kind of see them as really um, offering valuable insights but in some ways in different realms of human experience so yes I think Buddhism does offer some things that you that help us I mean certainly the the whole notion of interdependence interconnectedness. I mean, if you take that seriously and you bring that into your kind of daily life and politics, that should move you in the direction of a more progressive position because it's not the isolated ego, you know, or or about, you know, kind of um, trying to uh, reinforce 
the power of the of the isolated person or you know gaining more resources you're going to you're going to be have a you should have a more uh, ecological approach a more progressive approach uh, a sense of compassion and kindness i think all those all those things you know definitely help um but but I, but i'm really in, in my and my take on it again it's just my take you know my, my, my yeah. personal take on it i really think that um you know that marx but what a humanistic marxism offers is a kind of social analysis that i don't think buddhism offers i think buddhism offers certain things that can help um people involved in carrying out political act be more effective and more kind and and more more effective in that in that um, realm, but I really think that you know, Marx. What Marxism, humanistic Marxism, offers is that understanding of kind of historical change and social analysis and how individuals and social structures interact. Whereas, what I think what what Buddhism offers is the, the understanding that no matter what kind of society we have, even if it's a a much better society than the one we have right now, let's call it a democratic social society, the people still have a kind of in her tendency to um, to cause harm to themselves and others because of certain human tendencies that we have, you know, the tendency to greed, hatred, and delusion. That's just a simplifying it. Um, but I, I mean, I think we also have, by the way, I think we also have other human tendencies that work in the opposite direction. I think that are that are almost biologically uh, hardwired and also socially developed and developed through meditation as well. You know, toward cooperation and kindness and solidarity. Um, so I, I, I really, I think of Buddhism, Marxism is really offering insights in sort of different realms. But then they can sort of, if they dialogue with each other, they can then make um, the, the the activity in each of those realms better and right. more productive of a kind of a flourishing life. And so I, you know, I, I, I that's how I kind of look at it. Um, so I'm not someone, again, and it's not that um, I don't um, think it's wrong to try to do this, but I know that, you know, there are many people who would like to try to, you know, take certain um, Buddhist uh, concepts or perspectives and then show how it can be used in analy analyzing society or making change. And I think that's fine. You know, I think that you, you can do that, but that's not, that's not really my approach. It's more seeing them as kind of um, sort of, dealing with separate realms and then having a kind of conversation between the two to make, um, to, to, to create along with other perspectives, um, you know, a kind of um, a, a, both a, a sort of combined um, individual and social transformation. That's, that's really what, what I think is, is, is most important that we see it as sort of a, a mutually interactive and related process in which individuals transform themselves and transform society and that we use um we think of a, of, of a variety of perspectives that can help us do that so yes buddhism and marxism i think are two of the most important but i think there are other perspectives as well you know i mean i it's not something that i've written a lot about but i mean you could i think aspects of logical theories um you know, the ecology, ecology movement feminism um, certain philosophies, pragmatism, all, you know, I think are, uh, to me, sort of contribute to a, a sort of broad stream of um, perspectives 
that we all that we need to to really have both individual and social attention. Um, Does that make sense? <laughs> That's your dog, not mine. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. My wife is coming home, so he's he's saying hello to my wife. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So I think for me that touches on a point of like the tendency for people to want to have their tradition be somehow infallible, infallible, or uh, it can provide all the answers, and it's like. Uh, yeah, as opposed to saying, okay, well, no, like this Buddhist Buddhism is good for certain things, but it's not the end all be all for all of life's problems. <laughs> and then uh, Marxism yeah. is very good at other things, but it's not the end all be all for all of life's problems. Uh, right. John, that, that I, I a hundred percent agree with that. And I think that, you know, part of the, part of the challenge is to, um, you know, kind of recognize and see the value of, 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 of Buddhist insights and the value of Marxist humanistic Marxist social analysis, but, but also continue to be critical and also continue to, you know, to not sort of grab at some kind of master theory that's going to explain everything. Uh, and to know that, 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 that um, we continue, as we continue in human life to how to figure things out, that things evolve, that new perspectives emerge. And, um, and I think to, that to me actually is very consistent with a sort of Buddhist perspective on impermanence and, um, and sort of the Buddhist approach of, um, you, know, you know, learn, you know, see how it works in experience right? and, don't, and don't get attached to um, things. At the same time, look, it's important we have traditions and even secular Buddhists are starting to develop traditions now, even though we've kind of rebelled against the, in some ways against the traditional, you know, Buddhist, uh, Buddhist perspectives and ideas. So, I mean, people look, I mean, we, we as human beings, we're going to, we're going to feel a sense of connection. Um, we bond with other people over shared ideas and values and so forth. So it's not that we're just like floating and just sort of not, not caring about these perspectives. Yeah. I, I care deeply. Trying to, I, I want to help to develop a kind of secular Buddhist perspective. I want that to have an impact in terms of politics. And I want, you know, kind of humanistic Marxist perspective to kind of learn from other perspectives as well and change the way political activists talk about politics, engage in politics. But um, so, yeah, there's going to be, we have to sort of find the balance between being committed. Um, Taking taking something very seriously, and it's not just something off as unimportant, but also being willing to um, be open and to um, to evolve, you know, in terms of our. That um, when I uh, I did at my Master of Divinity at uh, University of the West, which is a Buddhist college in um, Los Angeles, and um, so I, uh, as part of the class, I had to take. Uh, as part of the program, I took a class on uh, hermeneutics. Um, and so then I found Paul Ricoeur, who was this uh, French philosopher. And yeah. uh, so he, he talked about hermeneutics of suspicion and hermeneutics <laughs> of recovery. Um, and he was saying how, uh, well, he talked about Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud as like the masters of suspicion, um, that they were good at challenging the totalizing truth claims of the church and um, 
but then he critiqued them by saying they just they replaced one totalizing uh, <laughs> truth claim worldview with another. <laughs> and so he, right. he was saying uh, Ricoeur was saying we we want a hermeneutics of suspicion to remove false consciousnesses, which I believe yeah. he borrowed that from Marx. The term false consciousness. Yeah, yeah. But then we want a hermeneutics of recovery so that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and um, and. And so I think this is kind of the, the ability to be open and mutually critically be able to be mutual critical in our approach. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful putting it. And, and I think that, um, look, there's just, a, there is a tendency, I, I, you know, it's, it's, there's probably, it's multiple, probably there's multiple factors that go into it, but there's a tendency for, you know, a new perspective that emerges or a new way of thinking about things to, to get rigid or, an orthodoxy to develop around it. And that's, you know, one of the things that Stephen Batchelor is always emphasizing is that that's not what he wants secular Buddhism to become. In fact, you know, he's been very resistant to, you know, to those who want to create organizations or some type of orthodoxy of secular, uh, secular Buddhism. But at the same time, we do need organizations. We need people to carry on perspectives and traditions and we also there's a certain value to because it anchors us in the world so yeah i think your your the, the, the hermeneutics of sus suspicion and hermeneutics of recovery it's a nice way of putting it but it's always a challenge it's, a, it's, a, it's i think it's it's just not it's just part of human life that we just have to deal with that and try to create the conditions where we can have um, dialogues with each other um, be able to disagree with each other and learn from each other. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, if in, in a, um, in, in the ideal society or, or better society, that's, I think one of the things that would be an integral component of our educational system, you know, where people would learn how to, how to do that, you know, and, and learn how to cultivate those, you know, communication skills and qualities of openness willingness to kind of learn from things that um, unfortunately is not is not really yeah. emphasized um so i was wondering um then yeah. after you started practicing buddhism practicing meditation um and and reading more and um and just how your the first reason you got into it was was to help you deal with the stress or the weight of your responsibilities yeah. um, so I'm just curious to hear more about how your Buddhist practice uh, helped you in your labor, organizing your labor teaching. Um, yeah, no, I think, you know, well, um, you know, of course it's, it's been an evolution. I mean, again, I, I, I always find it's, I find it interesting that um, typically in Buddhist circles, you know, people often say, well, I've been meditating, you know, it's like the length of the time meditating is, is, you know, kind of important for people to establish their, Bonafides, I guess, which I think is, I mean, you know, people who are doing it for a long time, you do learn and, and so forth. Um, so I think, you know, I've changed a bit in, over the years in terms of my own meditation practice. And I think it's, um, that's sort of a separate issue, but I think I've kind of deepened it in some ways. And, um, but I think, the, the, you know, becoming, you, you know, with meditation and becoming um, more mindful, um, you know, recognizing more, you know, the, the, this, the sense of change, the impermanence and doing that, you know, through, you know, you know, mindfulness of the body and, you know, and 
emotions and thoughts and so forth. Um, that and also just the, um, I've done a fair amount of meta practice. Um, so, you know, kind of emphasizing the interconnectedness of, of, um, of everybody, the, the sense of the, our shared suffering. Um, you know, those, I, I think what that, what that has allowed me to do is, um, uh, in either a labor movement, you know, in a labor union, I mean, particularly when, you know, there have been times, you know, when, you know, um, in any organization, you know, there's conflicts, people are struggling over issues and so forth. I think my meditation and kind of um, um, connection with, with Buddhism has helped me to play a more um, balancing role in, in, in sort of organizational situations. It's also made me more, um, I think, mindful of how others are relating to each other and to me. And as a teacher, that's been helpful in kind of um, being sensitive, I think, to students and their needs and how they're, um, you know, connecting with things. I think it also has helped me to have, um, you know, there are a lot of, when you're involved in labor unions or political movements, there are lots of disappointments, a lot of goals that are not met, a lot of, a lot of challenges that exist. Uh, and we certainly have many challenges right now. Um, I think it does, it has given me, um, although I think I had a little bit of it before, you know, my entrance into Buddhist practice, um, I have more of a, a kind of a stronger, longer term perspective. Um, I'm less likely to be thrown by um, failures. Um, and just, you know, I have more of the long term perspective. And um, I, I wrote about some of this in the in that article I mentioned. You know, I think that that um, that's been helpful. You know, and I think you know, I think people um, who I've talked to, you know, in um, you know my my in the labor union and, and you know you know my teaching have um, you know they they have commented in various ways. They felt like that's something that I bring. Um, to those settings. And I think, and I think that meditation and kind of internalizing um, Buddhist insights has been helpful in that regard. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like any human being, I'm complex and I have my, you know, personal history and, you know, my, my neuroses. And, you know, <laughs> so I, <laughs> I'm far from being, you know, mm -hmm. you know like a, a fully evolved person. I don't even think that's possible, but I, so but I think it has been, to answer your, just mm -hmm. to, to answer your question briefly, I think, yes, it has been in those ways. And I think that, frankly, you know, that that's where um, a kind of Buddhist um, practice and Buddhist perspective can, in, in, a, in a number of different ways, um, really help make individuals play a, a really sort of productive, positive role in social action. Um, in ways that people don't, I mean, you look, uh, people certainly, again, there are other traditions mm -hmm. that bring in some of that, those things. Again, they could be from religious positions. You know, you think mm -hmm. of, again, Dr. King's beloved community and Catholic liberation theology. And there's, in Judaism, there's those kinds of trends. And, you know, in other, in other perspectives that you know, I can't think of right now. So Buddhism is not the only sort of spiritual tradition that, that I think can have that kind of positive impact, but it definitely does, I think, can help, help people to play in the productive role.
Um, and and my, my research, I'm focusing on um, common, like, well, I guess I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of um, correlations between uh, Buddhist meditation and somatic trauma therapy. Mm. Um, and so I'm wondering um, how much, well, in terms of your, your involvement with healthcare uh, and an understanding of PTSD and um, sure. how that is, is, is there a growing understanding of that within labor organizing and, and that that needs to be dealt with or addressed? You know, I, I think that, that well, you, so now you're, um, you're sort of in the realm of um, various sort of psychological, you know, theories and perspectives. And yeah, I think, well, for myself, I personally believe that that's um, super important. In fact, I actually, I mean, you know, I think that um, in, in many Buddhist traditions, there is the notion that um, the way, well, I'll put aside the whole the whole idea of nirvana or total liberation, but let's just say <laughs> in terms of, you know, finding more peace and finding more balance and, and being more centered. So the idea is that, you know, in my, you know, in say meditation, what we're looking at is watching, you know, how things change or just seeing a sensation appear, you know, arise and be there and then fall away. And that's true of thoughts and emotions too, even difficult emotions. So, you know, it's your relationship to the emotion that's important and how you process it. And if you can process it in a way that's both mindful and compassionate in a loving, compassionate way, then that really is, gives you the ability to sort of handle those um, emotions. Um, and I think that's, there's a kernel of truth to that very important kernel of truth, but I also believe that it's important, you know, what psychology brings to, to the, the, you know, to this is understandings of how the his, your history, your um, relationships with family members, but, but also the impact of traumatic events and, um, you know, the kind of way and the content of your emotions and thoughts are also important to need to be processed as well. So that's my own personal perspective. And I, I actually, you know, in my own life, you know, I've, I've done therapy. So, I mean, I've, you know, continued to do therapy. So I think that's actually an important piece, um, not for everybody, but, you know, certainly um, I, I think that that also is of value. Now, if you're asking whether labor organizations, political organizations are recognizing more the value of whether it's, um, you know, kind of mindfulness-based therapies or somatic therapies, you know, referring to. Um, I, 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 maybe individuals are, and, you know, of course, you know, many individuals have had their own personal experience with that. But um, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think that's a long way from that being sort of seen as being, you know, kind of a, a vital importance. I think, I think there are, especially in the younger generation, um, there is much more of an understanding that, you know, we need to take care of ourselves as well as take care of and change society. There is much more understanding of if this is a, a, um, a simultaneous process, you know, um, individual transformation, social transformation. We need to take care of ourselves. We need to be mindful of what's happening with ourselves. We need to be aware of our body and the impact of, of, of trauma and so forth. Um, so I think that's that's getting out there more, but it's still um, 
we're still a long way from that really being you know, <laughs> an integral part of politics. And I don't know if it ever will be, but I think it's great that you're exploring that connection. And, um, you know, I just, I, I think that's, again, you know, I was referring, you know, I was referring to, you know, Buddhism, Marxism as sort of contributing to a really, you know, um, an important, you know, polit- a movement that, you know, toward change and social and individual change. But I think that the, some of the, the psychological therapies also, and and they they do have a role um yeah i guess i was just thinking like um and when you were talking about working in labor unions and 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 wanting to make them more democratic and um when you're teaching about it or educating people about it like the importance of that ability to be democratic with each other as a group of people yeah. Um, that that would probably bring a lot of stuff up. <laughs> oh, you know, you know John, I, I mean, look, I, you know, I've, I've been in my years, I've been in a lot of political movements, political organizations, labor unions. And, you know, I've seen the, you know, the harmful effect of people in organizations when they're not mindful, you know, when they're not, you know, they, they, you can even have a group that is, um, you know, uh, makes democracy. It's one of its primary goals. Mm-hmm. But yet, then the interaction within the organization, even if there's, you know, structures of democracy, there's elections. And, you know, that's, of course, that's super important. But if people don't know how to relate to each other in a compassionate way, in a democratic way, in a way where they're kind of open to each other, uh, and, and able to have a, a sort of a mindful dialogue with each other, then you you end up with just a huge amount. You end up with not just conflict, but people trying to, you know, form cliques, people, you know, hurting each other, denigrating each other. And I mean, look, I think that's to some extent that's just that's just part of human life. And I don't, and that, that's not never going to be totally erased. But certainly, if people, you know. Um, were more mindful uh, and they were more aware of their own sort of the personal stuff bringing to organizations, then it would be at all, you know, a lot better. And I, again, you know, look, you find that even in, um, it's interesting, even in Buddhist groups and Buddhist meditation centers, you know, there are conflicts and there are issues that emerge. I mean, I'm not even talking about the, the, the horrors of the abuse that occurred in, you know, in, in some, you know, um, some lineages and some centers. I just, I just mean like how people relate to each other, you know, whether they're on a committee or they're trying to figure out what the projects of the center should be, or, you know, what, what speakers invite or whatever. You still have a lot of you know, baggage, baggage that people bring into those discussions and there are conflicts. There. So, um, I just think that it's just that's I, I, I think that that is really an important component of trying to create across the board organizations that are just healthier, you know, they're more productive, they're more focused on common goals, um, and so yeah, I think all 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 this contributes to it. We can yeah. we can you know uh, encourage people to um, sort of explore that, these areas. And that, that idea that 
you had mentioned earlier of just education in general um, and, and oh. what, what does it mean what does it mean to be a human being and what what should we be learning right. um, i mean i mean no i you know look this is this is it's kind of what i'm saying is, is kind of obvious but you know I, I went to school and i you know i was like i just i kind of had the skills i did i did very well it was something actually that bought out of and you know, I learn. I, I was. I'm a learner. You know, I, I really enjoy it. I, I like reading and writing. Um, but I can't, I don't remember a time when I was in certainly going through elementary school, a little bit in college with certain teachers, but it was always the emphasis was so much on the individual, and um, it was all so much focused on that and. Um, I mean, maybe once in a while there would be a group project, but it was, it was not, there was no, I, see, it's not just, it's, it's, as I said before, it's really learning about the way to be a human being with another person right? yeah. Yeah. and to be a decent human being and to see your kind of, that you're tied together in important ways and that you're know, working on a project together to be able to, to, you know, to have power with each other as opposed to power over each other. And I think that has to be, you know, uh, and I think the Dalai Lama has talked about this in terms of the education. If that was encouraged, if that was really as, as important as learning math skills or, you know, learning about English grammar or how to write, I, I think that, that's, that's a, that's, that, would, that would be really helpful in terms of, Helping to make change possible, but also to to sustain it, right, and not have the change turn into something, you know, bad, bureaucratic, dictatorial, uh, animal farm situation. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. So yeah, that's always been a big, uh, a, a big, um, I don't know, something I've always, you know, a lot about. And, yeah. Um, so I know we're, our time is getting short. Right. So yes. I want to. Um, I just want to pivot to the current situation uh, with yes. the pandemic yes. and uh, what we could call the crisis of uh, extractivist capitalism reaching its mm -hmm. limit, but trying to take everybody down with it. Um, um, so, I guess yeah. From your Marx, from your Marxist perspective, what would you say? the pandemic has revealed about U.S. society and, and what needs to change. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it, look, it's, it's a lot of what we've been, we've been talking about. I mean, it, what it, first of all, the, 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 um, it, 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 what it, what it, what it reveals is that, you know, unfortunately our society is dominated by a corporate elite, uh, which actually then, I was in control of the healthcare system. So instead of a healthcare system, for example, that provides coverage for everybody, good, good health coverage, and emphasizes wellness um, and prevention of illness, and also has a very robust um, set of resources and planning for public health problems. I mean, look, this virus, um, you know, this is just part of human life. This is going to happen. And if we actually had um, a system in place where, you know, we had the equipment, the resources, the planning, the ability to test, and we actually, and, and, and also 
hired and had thousands of people in public health positions to be able to do tracking and testing and so forth, um, there would have been, the, the amount of people who died would, would have been much less. I mean, this is aside from Trump's essentially criminal behavior in terms of not moving more quickly and, and, and strongly in terms of social isolation. I mean, that he has on his hands probably 60, 70,000 deaths because of what, what, you know, what he did, yeah. but it's more, it's, but it's more than that. It's the fact that, you know, the healthcare system is dominated by uh, corporate, um, corporate hospitals. It's dominated by insurance companies. And, and what that means then is that resources are misplaced. We're not doing what we can to have people live healthy lives. And then the ones who are getting the hurt the most, it also, what that shows is that our society is profoundly imbalanced. And um, the people who are hurt the most are low-wage workers, the most vulnerable people, because um, they don't have the resources or opportunities to be able to shelter in place like, like others. Um, and, um, you know, there are many people in New York City is, was a, is a hotbed of COVID because, well, a lot of people live in closed, you know, fairly close environments with each other. They don't have the opportunity. I mean, I, you know, my wife and I are fortunate, are very fortunate. We live in the suburbs. Um, you know, we're not at all wealthy, you know, middle class lifestyle, but, you know, we have a, we have a home, you know, we're not like, we don't, we're not dealing with eight or 10 other people in our living space. The work that I do, that I'm, you know, I still teach as an adjunct instructor. I can do from home. I can do online. And a lot of people can't do that. And so the people who are getting hit the worst are the most vulnerable in our society. And that is a disgrace. Right? And that, that just points out to me that, you know, we have fundamentally uh, wrong priorities. We, we just are, the, the structure of our society needs to change. And, um, and, I, and I hope that this, this pandemic is creates more of a recognition of that. I don't know that it will, but I think like even in terms of the, the current political environment, it appears that obviously Biden, Joe Biden's going to be the Democratic nominee for president. And it, you know, as much as I'm disappointed, I, I wanted Bernie Sanders to, to be the nominee. It does appear that the crisis has actually forced him and his advisors to recognize that bolder changes are needed. And I think, you know, uh, if, if at least there was something along the lines of a kind of revised or new version of the New Deal of the 1930s involving climate change and involving you know, employment, involving the healthcare system, where we really created at least, you know, you know more social supports for and a fairer system, at least that would be a start. I mean, it wouldn't be democratic socialism, you know, where you'd have a full kind of full economic democracy and and a real sort of breaking of the power of the corporations. But but at least you know we would be moving in the right direction, and maybe that's happening because of the pandemic. But I think it to answer your question, but you know, it's just it shows that this system really is um, is rotten. And. Um... So then because Bernie was, um, well, I mean, just the whole maneuvering of the Democratic Party to yeah. get like Buttigieg and 
like yeah. all those people to drop out and then right, right. Um, um so i was listening to uh michael moore's podcast and he had um jane mcelvey on uh yeah. and so the main takeaway i got from that was that yes we need to keep pushing to get more democratic socialists uh, elected to things but we also need to uh get very involved in labor organizing because that that's the one area where where we actually can have some leverage and cause something to happen so it's like there needs to be a a revival of the labor movement that that's that's the only option um so what's your what's your feeling about that Oh, I, I mean, I, you're talking about Jane McAlevey, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, no, she's 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 fantastic. I, I, I you know, read read her books. I, I think she's got um, doesn't have the answers to everything, but she certainly has, I think, the right approach in terms of the labor movement. And she's right about that. I mean, it, there's other movements too that are important. I mean, I think mm-hmm. you know, Black Lives Matter and community movements are also in the mix. But yes, I, 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 as I said earlier, unless there is a vibrant and strong democratic labor movement that is able to challenge um, corporate power at the workplace right? and in strategic areas of the economy, um, we're really, it's like we're tying our, our, our hand behind our back in terms of being able to you know, challenge and, and to correct what's wrong. So yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, and, and, but, but also elections are important and they, they do, they do play a role and it would be, you know, again, I'm a very strong Bernie Sanders supporter. You know, I work for, you know, I do activity for him and I have a donated money and I just, I felt lousy when he, when he lost. But unfortunately, that's not where the people were at this point. I mean, he was only able to get 30 to 35 percent of the vote in a crowded field. I, so, you know, look, I mean, the, it's not surprising to me that, that he lost. But I think I, I do believe that you know Trump's getting elected again would be um, a horror show and a disaster. So I'm you know I'm going to vote for Biden. But not the only thing that we do we we work on other areas. We we fight for climate you know to deal with climate change. We you know, I think we have to um, build a strong labor movement. Um, we've got to make connections between the labor movement and people of color. And bring those issues together, and so it's it's a it's a multi pronged approach, and um, that's you know we we don't we're not going to have the strength to really change the system unless it is unless we do it in that way. So um, yeah, I, I I agree. And that um, this is where I, I use my my Buddhist lens to yeah, think yeah. about um, like the Buddhist idea that we have these um preconceived notions that we take as given and we don't question them or we don't even know that it's something that can be questioned um, right 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 <laughs> so then <laughs> the idea of the work environment and the relationship to the power structure within the work environment that and so this idea of the the individual and the structural system systemic uh level all coming together in one place that the relationship between workers and a boss or management yeah. it's like it's right there where the these whatever our preconceived notions are about how things should be um so it, it is a like a, a shift in consciousness that seems like 
we uh, have right. needs to be part of it. Or I mean, I'm you, uh, again, I'm 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 looking from the outside on it. So no, um, no, I think yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think you know you're right that um, you know part of the problem is that you know all of us to one degree or another have internalized um, a lot of the values of, of our our current system. Um, even those of us who are explicitly against it. I mean, we, we live in a society, so we're going to be influenced by it. And, and working people, um, you know, it, it, takes, it takes effort. It takes organizing um, and discussions with people for, for working people to even, you know, in a, in, a, in a situation where there's so much domination by the employer over people's work, people, Unfortunately, you know, in our country, we have pretty weak labor law unionizing. Um, a lot of people are afraid or they just feel disempowered or they are into kind of a, a sort of more individualistic mindset and don't see their progress being tied to the progress of their fellow workers. And that's what a union requires. It requires people to say, we have these problems at work. And you know what? It's not, it's not our fault individually, right? Uh, and we also individually don't have the power to change things unless we come together as a group, recognize our common problems and our common goals, and we're going to sort of support each other, you know, and fight to to make a change. And that's a that's a difficult process, right? Because it goes against, it cuts against the grain of the way our society is structured, although. That, that, that sort of tendency for people to coalesce is also sort of built into the system too because people are not stupid. They can see <laughs> that everybody is getting hurt and, oh, wait a minute, this is like, you know, these are, these are common problems that we have, so let's come together. So that's also a natural part of the system. But the, um, I think, you know, one of the things that you, you, you had wanted to sort of raise with me was sort of like what I thought were the, the biggest challenges Right yeah. for you know, and I think that's one of them is that you know people are um, it's what we've internalized, you know, and the sort of the pull of materialism, of commercialism, of individualism, you know, plays unfortunately a big role in our daily lives, and it and it does affect us. And you know, when you have people focused on that, you know, on what's the next thing to to buy online. Um, you know, it, it becomes harder to bring people together. So I would think, I think that's one thing. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, but then it's not just that, but we also have just the fact that, you know, uh, sort of, you know, in our, in our society, you know, we have, we have powerful and elites that don't want to see change. They've got a lot of invested in saying that change doesn't occur. And while there hasn't been a lot of violence Traditional sense recently in our society, there was back in the late 19th century, by the way, in labor history, yeah. there was tremendous violence against workers all the time. Um, that potential is always there, and you know, and and but it's it's not just violence, but economic pressure and fear, you know, that is imposed. So we, we've got the power of of the you know of, of corporate elites and political elites. We also have, unfortunately, someone like Trump who is playing such a negative role in creating divisions between people. And, you know, um, David Loy is someone um, who has talked a lot about the creating of a kind of an other, you know, this evil other. 
which he is he actually relates to sort of core Buddhist concepts. And he does a very interesting job of doing that. But we have, unfortunately, a politics that is um, dominated by, or at least a section of politics that's dominated by people who want to have people hate each other and create another. And it's then hard to create massive change when you've got such such a level polarization and a, such a demonization of of different groups. So I think that's another another factor which makes it makes the change hard. And I think you know probably the third change is that we we've, we've got to try to do what we're only starting to do now. What we've been talking about a lot in this discussion is change progressive and radical political and politics so that it takes into account more the need for individual transformation takes into account mindfulness practices, takes into account, you know, the need to understand our psychology and the effect of trauma and to see that it's not enough just to have strategies and tactics and goals, but we also need to, how do we act decently to each other <laughs> as we try to enact those strategies, tactics, and goals? How, how, how can we be good human beings with each other? You know, as as we do, I think those to me, you know, you had raised that as a as, yeah. a, as an area. That, that, those four things, I think, are I think are the biggest challenges. Yeah. Could you re- repeat them just like a bullet point, like the four? Okay. So I think the four. The first is just the, the power of, of 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 corporations and of political elites, and to do yeah. whatever they can to stop one, you know, progressive political change. And and again, ranging from to influencing through media to outright violence, if it ever got to that point. Second is the in politics, the, the use of, you know, device, divisive tactics. I mean, Trump is in some ways, uh, he's a horror show and, and he's despicable in terms of lying and, and how he treats people. But in some ways, he's a kind of a symptom of, you know, kind of a trend in politics to sort of demonize the other, try to to marginalize people of color and people who, who are vulnerable and suffer. So I think that's the second thing in politics. The third is just the, the that we, unfortunately, that, that all of us, to one degree or another, internalize um, the values and um, sort of processes that, that make the system run, you know, of, you know, by making, making ourselves feel better by buying things or viewing our, situation as one more about our own individual kind of striving as opposed to being the connections with other people. And I think the fourth thing is, you know, that we've got a long way to go to change the progressive political movement and the radical political movement to incorporate uh, mindfulness and um, other perspectives, ecological perspectives, so that as we're trying to make change, that we're doing it in a really healthy way with each other, that we treat each other with respect, kindness, uh, that we're open to differences, we're open to changing our, our points of view, but we're also at the same time very determined and very committed to change. So we're not being wishy-washy, but we can kind of combine the strength of our convictions with a kind of softness and kindness for each other um, to make as, as we try to make. Yeah. One one um, kind of metaphor I use is like the idea of if you're trying to heal from trauma, um, that is like it's becoming more accepted that uh, you need a body-centered approach to heal from yeah. the trauma. If you just 
work on the level of yes. uh, cognitive yeah. content. Right. You won't get that deep level change. And so I think of it almost as a metaphor, like, like the kind of liberal, uh, <laughs> liberal yeah. approach is like, yeah, like yeah. just working on a cognitive level, but it doesn't get down to the deeper. Well, yeah, I mean, what you're pointing to is that the, the changes that are needed are, are fundamental. They're fundamental socially, but they're also fundamental in terms of individual transformation. And that yeah. requires um, a, real cent- a real centering of the bo- in, into the body, of, of yeah. accepting, of, of understanding and being mindful of the body in all its ways. And also just, you know, kind of how we process things. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, if those, if those other uh, perspectives are not brought into the mix, then if you just have a kind of rational, rationalistic perspective about politics, just it's it, it's inadequate yeah it's inadequate and, and by the way it, it, it could be rationalistic even from a conservative perspective or even a radical perspective right Any, anything which doesn't you know take into account these other um perspectives it's, it's going to be um it's going to be doing right because because trump represents this kind of visceral approach yeah. and if you right. don't have a visceral response you can't right, right. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> But well, a, I mean, it's, a mindful visceral response. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so I guess we're, are, are we? Um, yeah, I think. Uh, can, I, can I just put in a yeah. plug for the Secular Buddhist Network? Oh, yeah, please. please we, yeah, feel free. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so, you know, um, we didn't get really a chance to talk a lot about the Secular Buddhist stuff I've been working on, but that, and that's fine. But I just want to say that um, over since October, um, with the help of um, a bunch of people, um, we created a, um, a new website um, called the Secular Buddhist Network.org. It's uh, one word, um, Secular Buddhist Network. And um, really to, to kind of offer a place where um, people could learn about uh, secular Buddhism and in its, in its variety. Okay, so it's, again, it's not in the North, it's not a, a, a website that is seeking to create an orthodoxy of secular Buddhism, but give people a sort of a sense of the varieties of perspectives on secular Buddhism so they can learn about it. There's actually a free online course, uh, an introduction to secular Buddhism, a lot of different articles that um, deal with meditation and socially engaged Buddhism. Uh, but it's also a place where people can connect with each other who want to sort of form, um, if they want to form a local sangha or just learn about what other people are doing. So it's also a, um, a sort of a, a networking, a connecting point. And, right. um, you know, I've been, I've been kind of, um, you know, since October, I've been, I'm the primer, I'm the editor of that. And we also have a monthly newsletter, um, Reimagining Community, that I put out once a month that has the newest uh, material on the website, newest articles and so forth. And I just, you know, again, I see this as, you know, from, you know, going back to what we've been talking about as a way of contributing to a kind of healthy uh, movement, you know, for change in our society. And I think secular, secular Buddhist approach is one component of that. And I, and I'm, what I'm trying to do with the website is to kind of, offer, you know, give that, um, make that a place where people can write articles that kind of offer different perspectives on that. And give people uh, maybe a basic sense of what um, a secular approach to the Dharma is about, and uh, hopefully they'll you know they'll explore it and and go from there. So um, you know I've, I've been happy to know that um, the traffic to the website has been steadily increasing. The their number of subscribers to the to the newsletter is um, going up. I mean again we're we're talking 
example of a relatively small phenomenon, just the, just like the phenomenon of the number of people who are interested in Marxism and, and Buddhism. <laughs> it's yeah. not very large, but I, I, I do. Uh, I'm really happy to kind of kind of nurture this thing. And if anybody, any of your listeners, you know, I would encourage them just you know take a look at the website. And in fact, um, you know, there's there's like all websites, there's a contact page so they can contact me if they want to, you know, give some feedback about it and or subscribe to the newsletter. And uh, even some some people, maybe like yourself, John, would want to write for it. <laughs> yeah, I would love to. In an article or something. So, you know, again, I just, um, I, I wanted to just kind of um, sort of nurture this and, and see how it goes. And um, it sounds like um, there's a need for people who want to get into Buddhism, and but they have like a secular perspective, but like, it's almost like, you could be vulnerable to attack from like fundamentalist Buddhists or like born again Buddhists or <laughs> yeah yeah traditional Buddhists yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and well, I mean that that's look, that's been an issue in in you know um, in, in fact there's a an organization in the United States called the Secular Buddhist Association um, mm-hmm. the, the executive the director of that is his name is Ted Meisner he has a podcast called Buddhist yeah. and that's that's been an issue that they've had to deal with because they they were probably the first group to sort of be very public about their secular Buddhism. And, you know, um, yeah, there's some traditional Buddhists who, you know, again, it's like the defensive of, of the orthodoxy and so forth. But, I mean, that's not something that I, I'm not, you know, I mean, again, with, yeah. with, our, with our website, and, you know, we're not, it's not like, it's not a forum for attacking traditional Buddhism. That's fine. I mean, people want to be traditional Buddhists in all the various lineage, lineages and, you know, different ways. That's mm-hmm. That's fine. I mean, but we're, I, I think you're right. I mean, like if someone is has heard about maybe Buddhism and something positive about it, and or mindfulness meditation, and they're but they're not interested in a, tra- a more traditional approach. Although again, among traditional Buddhists, there's a whole range of you know yeah. of, of approaches. Um, I think I think secular Buddhism is something just to, to, to just check it out and see. And, and you know, like like the like the Buddha said, you know, see what works for you. Right. So, see if it's helpful. And um, if that if it's helpful for you, then great. And then continue exploring. Cool. Um, well, thank you very much again for coming on. And I, we'd, I would love to have you again. And my co-hosts aren't with me today, but um, yeah, we would love to have you again. And um, yeah, we, we would like to participate also in, in what you're working on. And um, right. yeah. Well, you know, you know, thanks, uh, you know, for the opportunity to, to be on the, on the podcast. You know, I, I tell you the truth, this is, the first time in my life that I've ever been had a chance to kind of be interviewed and talk about kind of my life history and sort of overall views and um, a little nervous kind of going into it, but, uh, but you're a good host and um, I, I enjoy doing it. I hope, uh, I hope the, your listeners find, you know, something, some things interesting you know, in what we talked about today. Yeah. And I'm just very grateful. I feel like it's a real treasure house. Like what, what you are expressing is like a treasure house of wisdom. I'm not putting you on a pedestal, but I'm just saying. (laughs) Please don't. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. Cool. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks again.